the next two weeks, I will be away, uh, long scheduled speaking appointments elsewhere. Uh, I will be in Knoxville next Sunday for, I'll be there for four days actually, doing a series of talks. I used to do that about every year, but we had a break for several years and they've asked me to come back and do it again. Um, it should be a lot of fun. And then in two weeks, I would pray for November 1st that it, the weather's halfway decent because I'll be outside preaching. Uh, I'll be on a football field looking up at the War Memorial Stadium in Little Rock. They're having a gathered worship of all the churches that, that wish to gather. I'm sure some won't, but the gathering of churches. And they uh, called and asked me quite a few months ago if I would come and be that speaker on that Sunday. So I finally make it on a football field, but not as a player. So I'm not even a water boy, I'm just going to be talking. So, but since it is outside, I would very much appreciate your prayers. In the next two weeks, Dean Barham will be speaking. Uh, I'm envious because of where we are in the book. Remember, the book of Revelation is written to the people of its day, but its messages resonate and have very great purpose in our lives. The first three chapters are really uh, setting the stage and calling the church's attention to where they are in their spiritual journey with God, what is working, what is not working, and how they must prepare for what comes next. In chapters 4, 5, 6, we have, uh, let's just do 4 and 5 for now. We have an entrance into the throne room of God. One of those things we do not get to glimpse as a rule. It is a pulling back of curtains that most of the time in Scripture, when you get that pulling back of the curtains, the writer is told to go silent. Like, in, for example, with Daniel. It happened once with Paul. He said, there I saw things it is not lawful to speak about. But finally we get to look in the, and see what the throne room of God looks like. And I won't do a spoiler alert because there really is a huge spoiler in there. Dean gets to set that up. Then, chapter 6 onward, and we could argue that 6 and 7 are more worship than signs and seals, but the signs and seals are mentioned. So, now that we know who we are, now that we know who he is, we need to know what is the common lot of all believers in all societies, is that we are in combat, always, it doesn't matter when. It doesn't matter where. But that our, the weapons of our con, uh, combat are love and our focus on Jesus Christ and our modeling of Christ even in the middle of a storm. So, continuing with our messages to the churches, let's go to Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. I want to stop just for a second. Seven is not a magical number, neither is three, twelve, 40, 100, or 1,000. All of those numbers are used repeatedly in this book in the Jewish sense of those terms. Don't think of a numeric seven. You know, if you had seven cookies and, uh, you know, if I had seven cookies and you asked me for two cookies, how many would I have? Seven. You know, that sort of thing. It's not, it's because I'm not giving you my cookies. The, um, it doesn't mean that. When it's seven, it means perfect, all of them, uh, the way it should be. So the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Oof. 
Strengthen what remains and what is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. There, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That last passage, I will acknowledge his name. I used to, I, I don't know what it was now, hun, perhaps 15, 20 years, I used to go about the country doing marriage seminars. And some people would come to me and ask, what do you do to make sure you have a happy, healthy marriage? I said, one of the things you ought to do is do marriage seminars and then drive home with your wife <laughs> for 10 to 12 hours. Because if you don't live up to it, you will find out. There's an information exchange. Now, I, I, I love that. Uh, and I love that my wife and I have that kind of relationship because a, a minister can get misled into thinking they're a failure or that they are just a little bit less than Jesus. And it's nice to, um, at the end of the day when people come and say, that was lovely, that was brilliant. What Cammie thinks of it matters more than all the rest of you. Because she knows me. And she knows whether it's sincere, whether it's true, whether it's the overflow of the Spirit. She knows that. But even topping her, think of the thought of God you know, sitting on his throne and Jesus said, oh, that's Patrick. I like Patrick. And turning to all the people, don't you want your name acknowledged in that way? That's the highest thing you could ever have. But there was a problem. Sardis was a used-to-be town. Now, I, I could name towns I've been to, but I don't want to, to hurt any of our viewers. There are towns that used to have great jobs and great factories and are gone now. And you go in there and the streets are just bare. The shops are closed. Sardis was heading that direction. And it was, according to the, the writers of the day, people could see it. And they said it's dying because of the laziness of the people. The people had inherited wealth. So they didn't need to work. And so they didn't. And it was beginning to crumble. Sardis was known for two things. This big, impregnable fortress full of temples. Except it had been taken twice. And yet they still acted like, oh, we've got this. And the other was a huge necropolis. Now, necropolis is, is a Greek word that we don't use a lot in this country. In Scotland, you do. And in European countries, you do. In the city of Glasgow, where our daughter was born, there is a massive necropolis. It means the place of the dead, or the city of the dead. It's a huge graveyard with tons of above-ground mausoleums and the like, um, and towers and statues to people about how great they were, and we don't even know anything about them. Time has passed on. So the writer uses this, saying, you have a reputation for being alive, the, that impregnable fortress, but you're dead. These were people who would not work. They, they felt fine coasting. Churches love to coast. Uh, I find that many times leaders of churches 
are just interested in you know, spinning the tires and putting out the fires. There's no real, there's no real movement there. Ministries can do this, by the way. We can have pet ministries if we don't watch out, that we just keep going that aren't really doing anything. These people needed to do what they could while they could. Remember John 9, 4. Jesus says, work for the night is coming, for the night comes when no man can work. And I've always, and I've, I know I upset people when I say this, I'm just not concerned about the end of time. Because, by the way, if I thought it was tomorrow, it wouldn't be. Because Jesus says he's going to come when no one's looking. So, kind of file that away. But another is this. The end of time is up to God. The end of me is up to me. The end of my day is up to me. If at the end of my day, I can look up at Jesus and say, I did what I could today. I'll do what I can tomorrow. That's all he asks of us. Let us remember to work. His responsibility is when it will end. First commandment Christians, those are the ones we've talked about a few weeks ago. We say there is no other God before us, as so we should be, and so we should say. I, I reminded you that Alexander Campbell, who helped start this particular congregation, said if there is no God, nothing matters. But if there is a God, nothing else matters. You have a God. You should live every moment of your life in full acknowledgement and consciously saying, I have a God. We do have a Savior, and I love that Savior. I love grace. I need grace not every day, but every minute. I, that song, I Need Thee Every Hour, I thought was a bit optimistic when it came to me. I need Him more often. But my Savior is also Lord. We cannot forget that side of things. These people in Sardis were way too casual about their faith. And by being lazy and uninvolved, they were picking up soil on their garments. The writer knows every one of these cities well. There's a reason he brings this up. It was against the law in Roman Empire to approach the temple with stained or soiled garments. And so Jesus, the speaking from heaven, says... Too many of you have soiled your garments, and yet you approach my temple, my, my, the temple of God in heaven, as if you have not. By the way, the only industry left in Sardis was a wool industry. So again, this resonates with them as he's talking. They were losing their ability and right to approach God. They were in danger of losing their name out of the book of life. Philadelphia, the next city, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? And by the way, Pennsylvania town's named after this one, so there you are. It means city of brotherly love. Eh. There, there were the words, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. All of these things become, we understand once we understand about Philadelphia. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. Have you noticed he says that to the churches? That's really important that we keep that in mind too. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word. You have not denied my name. I will make those who are messengers of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet 
and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Now remember, he said this to them 2,000 years ago. He's talking to them. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. That message we can apply to us. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Wow. What higher honor could God ever give any of us than this? Saying, hold on till the end. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, my goodness. I, I, get, I got chills. Um, Philadelphia was a Greek city that became a Roman city. That means almost nothing to us, but it should. This was a rare city. Most cities dropped the Hellenistic, the Greek things, and enthusiastically grabbed the Roman. Most cities could not do both. But Philadelphia absorbed Roman culture, Roman gods, Roman ways, but kept their Greek th uh, style of thought, theater, writing, and, and it worked. And in this city was a huge, wealthy Jewish community. And it seems that some of them did not like the Christians. Once again, we are not anti-Jew or anti-Jewish by any stretch of the imagination. You have to go back into this time. If you were not an approved legal religion under Rome, you were not allowed to meet, not allowed to speak. And if they caught you with your holy books, not at this time, but very shortly thereafter, they would kill you and burn the books. It's one of the reasons why the churches gathered and said, we have to agree upon what are our holy books. The bi and that canonization of scripture was nobody wanted to die for the wrong book. This was part of that drive. There are places, I've, I've talked to Chinese Christians who said that they never sang a hymn in their gatherings because they were terrified of being overheard by a neighbor, those thin walls, those cheap built places, and they would be sent to prison. But the, the speaker would calmly and quietly name the hymn and they would turn to it and they would all read it at the same time. Think about what it would be like to be Christians when the Jews go to the Romans and the Jews are a protected legal religion and everybody thought Christians were Jews but the divisions had already begun because of the political tensions and because more and more Jews were accepting Christ while I don't know what the percentage was that did not those who did not were terrified that those accepted Christ would cause trouble in the community remember they were accused these are the men that have turned Jerusalem upside down if it causes trouble, it's going to come back on us. We may lose our legal standing. So this is not a Jew-Christian thing as it is a Jew-Christian thing under the reality of Roman politics. So please keep that. We love Jews and we love non-Jews, period. And we will not allow prejudice to be a part of us. 
This church, however, was going to struggle. The good news, it would survive. God had opened a door. That whole opening of a door had significance in Greek and Hebrew thought that it does not to us. It means I will stay available and you will be free to do the work I've called you to do. In fact, of all the churches named, only one survived long term. This one. This one survived, in fact, 800 years. Am I right? Hang on, let me do my math real quick. 600 years after the Muslims took the territory, they still survived. They still did not compromise who they were. They stayed open till 1392. Think of a church that lasts 1,200 years. That's astounding. We're coming up on 200, and I hope you throw a big party when that time comes. If I'm here, let me know there was one, because I'm not really sure I'm going to be active and out of my, my chair and, and my right mind, but boy, it'd be exciting. By the way, historically speaking, and this is contemporaneous, this is not, this is not myth or fiction, history writes of a woman named Amnia, A-M-M-I-A, who was a, a, a teacher and a preacher at Philadelphia, not the only one, but she's the one lauded by writers in the ancient world as equal to Agabus and the four daughters of Philip. She is given credit for their survival during the first wave of persecution. But God opens the door from them and nobody's going to shut, shut the door. That leads to an interesting question. If Fourth Avenue is the light on the hill, the preview of heaven, which I pray that we are, if this is the place of empty hands and open arms, the place where Jesus' love and acceptance rules, what if all the other lights go out around us? If they go dark, will we remain a light until the end? Jesus never says there won't be an end. He just says be faithful until the end. I hope and pray that I live every day facing God so that when I die, that's where I'm facing. It is not something which happens by accident. It must be a diligent effort. Let's look at Laodicea, because that's probably the most famous one. I've heard so many sermons about the lukewarm people of Laodicea. Okay, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. That you're neither hot and cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. By the way, that's got to be one of the top ten things you do not want Jesus to say to you. That's just terrifying. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in a fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Notice he didn't open it. Hmm. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Now, very, and please keep that up, uh, that where you are, don't worry, don't, you don't need to go back. 
that open door thing. Have you seen the famous painting of Jesus at the door? And every, all, every preacher brings up, there's no handle on this side. So it, it must be opened from the inside. You know, Jesus could open it. But Jesus is never going to force his way into your life. He's never going to kick the door open like a, like a heaven SWAT team. No, this has to be an agreement. You have to be in agreement to Jesus, with Jesus and walk with him. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Something which still staggers me is that in heaven, Jesus eventually leaves, in the book, this book, eventually leaves his throne to walk among us as brothers and sisters and equals, and I can still not get my head around that. And here he's saying, hey, I got a throne, you got a throne. Try to get your head around that. What a, hallelujah, what a savior. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. Laodicea was the richest, wealthiest town in the area. And they were known for producing medicines. The top one, a salve to put on your eyes. Notice how the writer knows at all about these cities. All through the empire, people wanted that salve. They also were the only city that produced black wool. Notice he says, I need you to be wearing white. Now that's a metaphor. It just means I need you not to join in Laodicea. I need you to be different than Laodicea. The only thing Laodicea lacked was good water. Their waters were lukewarm and tasted bad. Now, I know what this is like. I have traveled through Texas and Louisiana. And in Louisiana, there's even a town called Sulphur. Guess what it smells like? It does. I remember coming across from Scotland to visit, and we went down to Texas where my wife's family moved and where her father was originally from. And I found out very quickly, don't drink anything out of the tap. It's Sulphur. Went to a restaurant, ordered uh, some tea, because that's where, not the hot tea, because I don't trust Americans. The, uh, the, the, the cold tea, uh, and, and they brought it out, and the first sip was good, second sip wasn't, got worse, because sulfur coming out of the ice cubes. Ugh. No. I had somebody there say, you'll get used to it, and I said, no, because I'm mobile. I can leave. And I did. Anyway. We use the term lukewarm in a very different way from them. So sorry all the preachers I've heard that say you're not pro-Jesus or anti-Jesus. You're just kind of in the middle. That's what he means, lukewarm. I'll spit you out of my mouth. Great sermon. And I actually do agree with the point being made. But you can't make that point with Laodicea. Because to them, lukewarm meant something else. It meant useless. It didn't mean eh. It meant we can use hot water, we can use you know, hot springs, we can use cold water, but lukewarm water, I still have a use for you. The church in Laodicea was having a zero impact on their community. It wasn't changing anything, wasn't moving the dial anywhere. Ministries need, again, to ask themselves every so often, are we useful for Christ, or are these ministries merely pets for the faithful? One of the two. You've got to make a decision. 
these, all these ministries, all of these speaking, they, they were set up with a choice to make. Invite Jesus in, let him do what he wants to do with you, or you have the choice to continue in your wretched, naked, and broken state until you fade away. For nearly 30 years, I've been flying across the U.S. and Canada, um, much less overseas. It's almost entirely here. Working with churches and helping them make the right decision, helping them turn. And the vast majority of them really do. They make progress. Every so often you run across one and goes, you know, we've had a look at all this. We're doing, we're staying where we are. And the implosions are tragic because Jesus wanted to do something. Jesus wanted to move. Jesus wanted to be the center. And instead, the standard was maintained. I want you to do something, please, <clears throat> because we're using Revelation, by the way, in case you wondered, to bring us through Advent. Last year, we used the parables of Christ to, and showed how the parables showed not only a moral lesson, but the way the world should be now that Jesus has come. Because they are all Advent stories. This is a real Advent book. We're going to use it to roll into there. So do yourself a great favor. Read chapters 4 through 9. Now don't read analytically. Not at first. Read it fast. You might want to read it fast again. And each time you read it again, read it a little bit slower and notice the nuances and the moves don't try to dissect it. Don't try to interpret it. We'll get there. Now, I trust you. I'm, it's not like I don't trust your interpretation. No, I trust you. Instead, what I want you to do is do what they did. You have to hear it again and again. Very few could have read it. They were literate people. But you just didn't hand over a book to people, a scroll. That was very holy and kept apart because you didn't have another one. So they would hear it again and again and again. Let it soak into you because it's important that we know that the real world is not this world. The real world's chapters 4 through 9. The throne room of God. And he is not sleeping. He is at work. Would you please stand as we read from God's holy word. And... Kelsey, thank you for doing such a lovely job. The entire team is just wonderful. And I appreciate Mark for building a deep bench and keeping building that deep bench. We are blessed people to be at Fourth. Hear the words of the Lord. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door. See the door? Standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. I'll show you what must take place after this. Not might, even not will, must. The will of the, of the Lord will be done. At once, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, <clears throat> sorry, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They, had, they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, and 
In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was, had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Could you hold that passage up, please? Church, would you read that last passage and quotes with me? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. One more time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the whole church says, Amen. Amen.